one of, one of the challenges for human beings is that the world is a confusing place. Because it's this place of astronomical beauty and wonder. It's this place of Grand Canyons and Niagara Falls, of birds and butterflies and stars and sunsets. It's it's this place which can take your breath away. But it's also a place of floods and earthquakes and destruction and decay. And so that, that's confusing, but, but perhaps even more confusing than that is humanity itself, is, is human beings themselves. Because human beings are capable of incredible acts of kindness and creativity. We can create art which transfixes us, which we just can't look away from. We can create experiences which take our breath away. We can make music which stirs our soul. We can build loving, meaningful relationships. We can be generous. And history is actually full of people who have done unbelievable acts of kindness and self-sacrifice. You can read stories where you just think, I I can't believe that somebody did that for somebody else. Sometimes for complete strangers, acts of self-sacrifice and kindness from human beings who didn't even know the other person. Human beings are are capable of this unbelievable kindness and goodness and self-sacrifice. But we've also shown ourselves to be capable of unbelievable acts of destruction and evil. We have been shown ourselves to be more than capable of not only making beauty, but destroying a lot of the beauty that we make. Destroying nature, vandalizing, vandalizing place of beauty, sabotaging people's experiences. Whilst we can create experiences that, that take people's breath away, we can also destroy and damage those experiences. And sometimes we seem to go out of our way to do that, to put a spanner in the works, to spoil that experience for another human being. And whilst we're capable of unbelievable acts of self-sacrifice, we've also shown that we're quite willing to sacrifice other people for our own gain. We're quite willing to kill for a little bit more power, to steal for a little bit more money, to abuse and exploit just to get a particular sensation or experience. Alongside all the kindness is anger and hate and envy, and pride, and malice, and gossip, and deceit. See, this is, this is the confusing nature of the world. Uh, and, the, and the question really is, why? Like, why is the world like that? You'll, you'll find that people are, are constantly throughout history, and you'll have come across people asking this question, and debating this thing. You know, are human beings basically good, or basically bad? Like, at their, at their core, what are human beings like? There we go, he's in. Um, well done. <laughs> got, we got there in the end. And, and human beings have been trying to work out why is this the case? 
It seems inconceivable that both these truths could coexist simultaneously. And so what you have is religions and philosophies seeking to make sense of this. And I guess more recently in our secular age, we've had all kinds of theories, theories around class struggle, theories about genetics and genetic wiring, about selfish genes, seeking to explain that why the world is like it is. Why do people behave in this seemingly contradictory way? Because for anything to be true, for any philosophy or religion or idea to be true, it would have to make sense of the world as it is, this world of beauty and ugliness, this world of kindness and evil. If it doesn't make sense of that, if it can't explain why the world is like this, it it can't possibly be true. Because that is the world we live in. And so the Bible story begins with what we were looking at last week, a creation that is good because it's made by a good God and he wanted it to be good. But then it rapidly moves on to the other side of the question. Okay, so what went wrong? If, the, if, if creation was good, if human beings were made good, if all of this was good, then why is there so much that's not good? Because any honest observer of our world would have to acknowledge that something has gone seriously wrong in this world. So let's, let's get into Genesis 3. Let's get into Genesis 3 and see what the Bible has to teach about this. I want to read the first, I don't know what I want to read, maybe the first six verses. Let's do the first six verses and then we'll have a chat about that and then we'll read the rest in a minute. So, now the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman. But God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So after two chapters of A Good World, the Bible progresses on to what has gone wrong. Uh, And let's just be clear, the heart of the answer that the Bible gives to what has gone wrong in this world is human beings disobeying God. At its most basic level, that's the Bible's answer to the question. What went wrong in the world? Human beings decided they weren't going to do what God wanted to do and they were going to go their own way. The God who made the world and so could legitimately tell us how to live in it, the God who made everything and so knew how it was designed to work, we said to him, we don't want to live in your world your way, we want to do it our way. And of course, as God's way was perfect, any divergence away from that is by sort of very definition worse At any time you move away from a perfect plan, you move to something less good because there is nothing better. You can't improve it. You can't make it better. So you're you're definitely going to make it worse. So every time we didn't listen to God and we didn't obey him, we broke the world a little bit more until very quickly every element of the world was in some way broken. More than that, 
The entire point of creation, God, crea- God made this universe and he made it with a purpose. And the point of that purpose was to point to him, so to declare and praise the God who made it and to live in the right relationship with him. So the minute we said we don't want to go your way, not only have we taken a perfect plan and made it less perfect, we've also made creation uh, not about what it was created to be about. It's no longer about relationship with God and about pointing to God. So again, we've, we've destroyed the entire purpose of creation. Now this, at its most basic level, this is what we mean when we talk about sin. This is the nature of sin in the Bible. But the Bible talks a lot about sin, and it's one of those words that people get really hung up about. But it's most basic level, sin is simply disobeying God. It's taking God's perfect plan for his world and saying, we don't want to do that, we want to do something different. And if we do something different to what God intends, it is worse. Sin is humanity's unwillingness to listen and obey God. And that inevitably leads to brokenness, pain, suffering, evil, destruction. The Bible's diagnosis for what went wrong in the world is pretty simple. We rejected God and his ways, and that inevitably damages the world. You can't reject the source of life without bringing death into the world. You can't reject the source of wisdom without bringing a whole load of foolishness into the world. You can't reject the source of goodness without bringing evil into the world. You can't reject the purpose you were created for without bringing emptiness into the world. You can't reject the source of joy without bringing sorrow into the world. That's just how it works. So, So why is this world, this seemingly contradictory mess of beauty and ugliness of goodness and evil? Well, Genesis 1 to 3 says it's because it was made to be good by a good God and so still retains some of its intrinsic goodness. But we rejected his ways and so this goodness has been corrupted by all sorts of evil. That is the Bible's explanation of the world and of humanity. So if you want to understand the storyline of the Bible, which is what we're trying to do over these four weeks, you need to understand what the Bible says about why the world is as it is. That, That is the heart of the Bible story. And I guess the question it leaves me asking is, if sin is so destructive, so if it it causes all this brokenness and all this damage, if if it creates all this evil and all this ugliness, then why did it ever take hold in the world? Like, why would anyone do it? It just seems pointless. Why, Why did sin get such a stranglehold over the world we live in? And and I want to suggest that in this story, we see three great lies that sin has built its empire on. Three great lies that it tells over and over again. And I just want to spend a few minutes just thinking about what these lies are. And the first great lie of sin is this. It's, we don't need to listen to God. It's the first great lie that sin will tell you. You see it there in verse 1, the end of verse 1. Did God really say? Because if you're going to reject God's way in the world, if you're going to embrace brokenness and folly, then you need to find a way to ignore what God says. And we're tempted to do this in two ways. The first way is to do that question, did God really say? The temptation is not initially to reject. It's not initially to say God didn't say. The temptation is initially to question and sow some seeds of doubt. Did God 
really say what you think he says. I mean, that is such an age-old tactic, and it gets rolled out generation after generation after generation. Did God really say that sex is only for marriage? Did God really say that we should love others more than ourselves? Did God really say that we should be part of a church? Did God really say that the only way to be forgiven and come back into relationship with him is through Jesus? Did God really say those things? We don't say he didn't. We just, we just plant the seeds. Did God really say that? We start questioning it. That's where it starts. You don't need to listen to God. God didn't really say that. Are you sure he said that? Are you sure that what he said about that thing is really what you think it was? But then look where it very quickly goes in verse 4. In, very, in verse 4, it's gone to, you will not die. We go from questioning to outright rejection. The questioning and subtlety is gone by verse 4. Now we just deny what God says to be true. And notice the great lie which sits under this. This is what he says. God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. The lie is this, and it's an age-old lie. God wants to keep something good from you. You'll hear it over and over again. You'll believe it in your heart over and over again. You will hear that lie. There's something good out there, and God's keeping you from it. He doesn't want you to have it. He doesn't want you to experience the fullness that you can have by having this thing. And so you need to ignore what God says and go your own way. The great lie. I just want you to think about your life, whether you're you're a Christian or not, whatever you believe here today. What, What is it that enables sin or brokenness or evil to take hold in your lives? I want to suggest that the process often looks so similar. We start by questioning, did God actually say that thing? In our culture, we've got a great way to do that. Um, we just say, does, did God, does God actually exist? If we can question God's existence, well then, we can question everything he says. God can't have said that, because he doesn't exist. If God doesn't exist, he can't have said anything. So we can just, if we can just throw enough doubt on God's existence then we can ignore anything he might have said. We start by questioning, and then we convince ourselves that God is withholding something good from us. I can't obey what God says about relationships, because if I do, I might end up sad and single. So we dive headlong into a relationship that God says we shouldn't, and we find that actually God wasn't withholding something good from us, but protecting us from something bad. I can't obey what God says about not getting drunk because if I do, I'll miss out on a night of a lifetime. Only to discover that God had a better vision for your life that he was calling you to. You want to know how the world got so broken? How people ended up so messed up and doing so many bad things? Well, we started questioning whether what God said was true and we started believing that God was withholding something good from us. That in order to really live, We had to go our own way. And so then we full on reject the perfect way God intended the world to run and we spiral into more and more chaos. Chasing a life that we're promised but that actually was never really on offer. See, that's that's why sin took such hold in the world. 
Look at your heart. Isn't that why it does? You believe that God's holding something good from you. You believe that you just need to stop listening to him to really live, to really experience life. And this is the second thing that, that sin promises. It says we can be our own gods. That's the, that's the second great lie that pulls us in. We hear that lie, you can be your own gods. You can be like God. And of course, in what way can we be like God? Well, we're told that the, the temptation is you can be like God, you can decide what's right and wrong for yourself. This is in essence the voice which whispers in our ear and says, you do you. You do what you think is right. Why should anyone else tell you how to live? What kind of primitive, fundamentalist bigot are you to let someone else decide what is right and wrong for you? You should be deciding for yourself. There is no objective morality, just the right and wrong that you decide. See, it's, it's always a temptation of sin. You, you get to decide what's right and wrong. You can take that role. Don't rely on someone else. Don't let someone else call those shots for you. You decide what's right and wrong for you. It's just so tempting. We'd love to have that power. We want to have that power. We believe we should have that power. And so there's these two great lies. God's withholding something good from us and we don't need to listen to him. That we can be like God, deciding right and wrong for ourselves. But actually, I think most of it comes down to a third great lie, which you see in verse 6. I think most of the time where we go down this destructive path, it's, it's basically because of this. It's because of verse 6. Then the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. You want to know what I think the story of so much evil and destruction in the world is? Is we just see something and we want it so badly. We just see it and it's there and we want it. No matter the cost. I just want that thing and I want it now. That extra chocolate bar that we know we'll regret in the morning. We just can't resist it though, because it's there and we want it. That one night stand which we know will destabilize our marriage and ruin a friendship, but we just want it so much right then. That angry word or unkind comment which we know will hurt someone else and make our life harder, but we just want the satisfaction of saying it. I think the, the appeal of sin is pretty straightforward. It, appears, it appeals to our feelings, and it's nearly always short-termist. You can have this thing, and you can have it now. It's short-termist because it says, we say, I feel like I want this thing now, and to hell with the consequences. We basically prayed away our long-term happiness and good, and the long-term happiness and good of others, for something which we see and we want right now. They see the fruit, it looks desirable. And so they take it. That's just, that's just how it works. It's there in front of us. And at that moment, we just want it so badly. And we don't care what happens because of it. It's the story that's repeated again and again in the Bible, actually. That's why it's the foundation story of what went wrong in the world. That's why Genesis 3 sits at the start, because you'll see this story repeated again and again. You'll see it repeated with Jacob and Esau, where Esau wants a bowl of soup so desperately that he's willing to sell everything that's his in the future for that bowl of soup. I guess one of the most famous examples is you'll see it with um, King David, 
I don't know if you know the story of King David from the Old Testament. He, King David's a, a great figure, one of the heroes of the Bible. You'll know him from stories like David and Goliath. He's described as a man after God's own heart. There's so much to admire about David. But the Bible tells a story of King David where he sees a woman bathing on a roof. And he sees her and he just wants her. He just wants her so badly. And he wants her right now. So he kills her husband. He takes her for his own wife. It's just the same story repeated again and again. He sees something, he wants it, and so he took it. And in order to take it, he lies, he commits adultery, he commits murder. And as a result, what happens? His family's torn to pieces. He ends up with an insurrection in his kingdom. It's the classic tale repeated again and again throughout history, which is repeated again and again in our own lives. We see something. Sin promises us immediate pleasure with no consequences. You can have that thing and nothing bad will happen. But the reality is so very different. This is why sin took such a hold in our world. It's why it's taken such a hold in our own heart. It appeals to our short-term feelings. You can have that thing now. And it'll be all right. But Genesis 3 goes on to say, actually, it won't be all right. Actually, there, there will be consequences. There will be a price to pay. Let, let's pick up the story, shall we, in verse 7. Let me read from 7 to the end of the chapter. Uh, and we'll just spend a bit of time just thinking about what those consequences are. Then, the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the snake deceived me and I ate it. So the Lord God said to the snake, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing bearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. You will desi your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken. For dust you are and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he'd been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So, We've seen a bit about the nature of sin and about how it has taken such a stranglehold on everything. Uh, and just the final thing I just want to think about is, so what? Like what, what has that done in our world? 
What are the consequences of that? And I want to suggest there's four things which human rebellion from God has brought into the world, which are highlighted in this passage. There's probably more, but I'm going to give you four for today because that seems like enough. Um, The first and most serious is this, separation from God. We rebelled against God, and as we did that, we drove this wedge between ourselves and God. There was distance which had never been there before. We weren't on the same page, moving in the same direction, committed to the same things, but now we were in conflict. God wanting us to treat the world one way, ourselves determined to treat it a different way. And what I think is really interesting in this account uh, and Genesis 3 is that that separation, there's two elements to it. There's a, there's a human element where we, we create our own separation from God. You see that at the start in verse 8, I think it is, they hide from God. So there's a self-inflicted separation from God that comes as a result of sin. We no longer want to be with him. We no longer want to be around him. So there's that, there's that sense to which we're separated from God because we're hiding from him. We want to avoid him. We don't want to be around him. And so it's because it's our own fault. Like we, we do it ourselves. But there's also another sense to it, which you see in verse 23 and 24, where actually God banishes them from the garden. So it's, it's both. We hide and we don't want to see God, but God also can no longer have us in his presence. They're driven out from his presence. A perfect God can no longer coexist with people who are so committed to rejecting him, to sin and to destruction. It's not either or. It's not, well, did we, did we want, not want God or did God not want us? It was, we were just separated. We hid from him. God could no longer tolerate us. So sin separated human beings from God. We don't want to know him anymore, and even if we do, we can't approach him because he is too pure, too perfect, too holy for us. That's the, that's the problem with sin. It separates us from the God who made us. The next thing which comes from sin is fear and shame. Look with me at verse 10. They suddenly realize that they're naked, and they for the first time experience shame. And what does that result in? Fear. They are afraid. You want to know what the consequences of sin in our world are? Fear and shame. How many of us live our lives with fear and shame as our constant companions? Uh, How many of us is, is it ever present, every day, battling with senses of shame and fear? Ashamed of things we've done which we worry will come back to haunt us. Ashamed of things that we've said that we cringe just to remember. Ashamed of our failed marriage or the imperfections in our appearance or our wasted lives. Afraid that people will one day find out what we're really like. Afraid that people are going to take advantage or exploit us. Afraid that we're going to be hurt or embarrassed or exposed. Afraid that we are going to hurt or embarrass other people. This is, this is the dreadful consequence of sin. It promises us wisdom and pleasure and it delivers shame and fear. That, that's, that's the terrible thing about it. At the moment we're, we're sucked into it, it says you can be wise and look at how desirable it is. And then the minute you take it, what does it give you? Fear and shame. And of course, we can't really live with fear and shame. We're like, we can't live our lives just constantly feeling like that. So we've got to find a way to deal with it. Uh, and the way we deal with it is simple. We deal with it through blame. 
I, f- I'm, I feel so afraid and so ashamed. I just need to shift it onto someone else. And so we start shifting it around. So one of the kind of most obvious bits of Genesis 3 is the way that people instantly start blaming each other. No one willing to take responsibility. The man blames the woman, the woman blames the snake. No one's willing to acknowledge their own failing and their own mistakes. It just hurts too much. We don't want to face up to it. We don't want to feel that shame and that fear. The weight of what we've done, of what we've broken is so great. So we go into denial and we find someone else to blame. And that means we can always avoid facing up to the mess that we've made of everything. Uh, And then the fourth consequence of sin, which is important, I think, because it's a question we often get asked, is um, thorns and thistles. See in verse 17 and 18, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the fields. I just want you to notice the consequence of their sin is not limited to them. It, it, It impacts the whole of creation. The whole of creation goes out of kill to here. Suddenly work is painful toil because the world around them is no longer a willing cooperator. The whole world is damaged. And so thorns and thistles appear where previously there were only trees and bushes. The Bible says that now all of creation is groaning. All of creation is now less than the perfect world it was created to be. And so even things that have no direct human cause, cause earthquakes or landslides, all of that came about at the point that human beings rejected God and decided that they would prefer a world without him. The Bible says that's one of the consequences of human sin. So we're, we're going to wrap up for this week. We'll, we'll, we'll come back next week. But this is, this is the start of the storyline of the Bible. A good world made by a good God, which human beings decided to abuse and misuse, and which as a result became fallen. That's what we mean when we talk about the fall. And of course, it leads us with a question that we long to get to. The answer of is, how does a fallen world get raised back up again? How does what is broken get remade? And I guess the the good news is that even here in Genesis 3, we're not left without any hope. Because in verse 15, we have this elusive phrase. You You can see it if you just look it up before you. In which we're told that one day, someone will come who will crush sin and evil. One day, someone will come to destroy all the evil which came into the world on that day. And this person would suffer in order to do this. His heel would be struck. But he would nonetheless win the victory. Yes, he would be struck. But sin and evil would be crushed. And it's to that great act that we're going to turn our attention next week. So do come back. Let's not, let's not leave ourselves with a fallen world. Let's get back. Let's hear about this person who came to, to crush evil to raise back up this fallen world. But, but in the meantime, just let me give you a, a quick taster. This great reversal of the fall would only be achieved when God himself comes to set everything right. And so he comes in the person of Jesus and sin and evil do everything they could at him. His heel was truly struck. He was tortured, humiliated, ultimately killed but though he was struck through his great act evil itself was crushed 
forgiveness was made possible. A future hope of a new creation where everything is made light and put back into alignment was secured. That's where we're going to be going next week. That's what we're going to be looking at. But for this week, I guess I want us to face up to the fact that the fall is not simply something which happened to someone else. It's a story that's repeated over and over again in the life of every human being that's ever lived. That's, that's what this story is about. It's about saying, yes, this is the story of, of the origin of what went wrong in the world, but it's a story that's been repeated by every human being who's ever lived. And so what, this is what I, I want to suggest we do in response to this. If you, if you are a Christian here today, the first thing you need to do is you need to face up to that fact. See, the temptation for, for religious people is always to pretend that what's true of everyone else isn't true of them. This isn't my story. This is their story. This is someone else's story. I'm basically a good person. But the Bible doesn't allow us to do that. It says this is true of every human being. So I, I want us to spend a, a few minutes now. Just I'm going to give it a time of quiet and I just want you to think about where, where have you been guilty of this where have you believed those lies where have you said to God I, I don't want to do things your way I'm going to do my own ways and where have you brought destruction and ugliness and pain into the world because all of us have I want you to spend some time thinking about that and then as you do that I want you to do what the Bible calls us to do with that which is not to wallow <laughs> and it's not to despair it's to confess that's always the Bible's answer to that. We face it, we don't pretend it's not there, and then we confess it to a God who loves to forgive.